There's a story there about a place called the Tower of Siloam. And uh, he just kept, in my spirit, I could feel the Holy Spirit saying, there's a message there that I want you to speak to the people about. And Jesus' reaction to this uh, event. And all week I wrestled with this. I mean, literally wrestled with this all week. And I was, anybody ever, um, God speaking to you and you're just like, God, I don't get it. I mean, I just don't get it. I mean, what is it you're trying to tell me? And I really wish you would give me this a lot earlier. And so all week I wrestled with this and studied on this. And this particular event in here is really vague because there's not a lot of historical information about what exactly happened. So I can't really go into a lot of detail about the background of it. There's speculation on it. But God just kept telling me, no, that's where I want you to go. That's where I want you to go. That's what I want you to do. And so sure enough, all week I just prayed, God, show me. Well, what is it you want to speak this morning? And so here I was this morning at 5 a.m. and I was just finally frustrated with it. And I just uh, said, God, I'm going to go sleep for one hour. And um, if you want me to preach on something different, um, when I wake up, let me have something different in my heart. And uh, so I remember falling asleep and I was still praying and still saying, you know, help me, Lord, help me, Lord, help me, Lord. And um, I slept for an hour and um, I, I had bad dreams for an hour, which I never had bad dreams. And I just was troubled for a whole hour and, and, and then I woke up and I was, and, and, and God was like, no, this is still, still it, you know, and, and, uh, so anyway, the title of my message is court, court date. What a wonderful message, huh? Has anybody ever known, and I've never had the, um, fortunately the situation where I've had a, a impending court date, but have you ever known somebody that has a date with a court or with a judge, and there's a judgment against them, and they're preparing themselves for that court date. And there's a lot you can learn about a person who's preparing for their court date. How many have ever seen the mugshots of somebody uh, who commit a, committed a horrendous crime, and they're smiling on the mugshot? I mean, like, you know they just got booked for that, and you know what they did was really bad, but they're just halfway grinning at the mugshot, right? And it tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you something inside by their outward uh, behavior. And a lot of people, in the process of time up till their court date, up until they meet with the judge, uh, their behavior is very similar to that, the smiling mugshot. You know, they continue to get in trouble. How many have ever seen this in the news or maybe somebody you've known? There's really no um, contrition whatsoever for the crime that they committed. In fact, they're still committing crimes up till the time they have to meet with a judge. And so it's revealing something about that heart. Like, you know, that person probably never really felt bad about what they did wrong. And the judge will, how many know that the judge will take that into account? Their heart up until the date of their court date. And he'll watch their demeanor in the courtroom. You know, sometimes they'll shrug their shoulders or they won't make eye contact. And, you know, a a good lawyer, I would suspect, would really um, uh, coach a person who has committed a serious 
crime about how they should behave in front of a judge, right? And Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus is trying to speak to us today from this story. In fact, the context context before and the context after is you have an impending court date with God. How many know that? There's a thing called judgment. And for some, we'll be at the judgment seat of Christ, which is really a reward banquet. How many know that? But then there's also the great white throne judgment, which sinners will stand before the great white throne judgment. But no matter who you are, write this statistic down. One person out of every one... Yeah, I'm joking. I just messed up your notes. One person out of one will have to stand before the judgment seat. One or the other. So it's impending for all of us. And how many know that uh, it says something about your heart, how you behave up until the court date? Now I'm going to stand before God and you're going to stand before God. And Jesus is specifically talking. In fact, it's the Pharisees um, that are following him around and they're trying to trip him up. You know, they're really testing him to try to get him to mess up in some area. And I want you guys to know that he's directly speaking to the heart of this these Pharisees. It's like judgment is right around the corner for these men that were following him around trying to trip him up. And he said they were like a tomb, had dead man's bones in their heart and were rotting, but on the outside they looked really pretty. They looked really good to everybody around them. And what he was trying to tell them is, do you not even realize that you have a court date coming? You know, when you try to get away with all these things and you and you do this damage and, and the way you live your life, do you not realize that you have a court date coming up? How can you stand there and just grin at God and dismiss God? Just think about it. How much do we dismiss God even though we all know the court date is pending? Wouldn't you want to get the favor of God? I mean, wouldn't I want to have a heart that shows a judge that I'm the type of guy that deserves to have some type of mercy? That's what we're trying to do with the judge, right? I mean, how many have ever seen some type of figure of authority? The officer pulls you over. There are some people that are like, I am so sorry. I did this wrong. I did that wrong. I did this wrong. And your hope is that I have enough humility that he'll show me mercy. Or I go before a judge, the right heart will hope that there's enough humility that he knows that you made a mistake and I don't want to make a further mistake. And so Jesus is addressing this issue and it's really critical for us to understand this because he's doing it in light of these incidents. Luke chapter 13 says... Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now this is interesting because it it looks like there were some people that were there that witnessed a current event, and it looks like Jesus is actually kind of bringing this up. You know, these are tragic events in their day. I mean, these are the most tragic things that their eyes have seen. 
Okay, one is an incident of Pilate, and Pilate, um, just to tell you the story, uh, there were a group of Jews who were worshiping and making sacrifices, most likely at Passover, because it's the only time the people would be making sacrifices individually. Well, there was an insurrection, and there's a certain individual that historically they believe caused an uprising. And so Pilate wanted to show his his strength putting down this uprising. So he actually killed them in the temple, and their blood evidently mingled with their sacrifice. I mean, killed them right there in the temple and put down that uprising real quick and sent a message to the rest of the people, do not come against us. Now, this is really important because this is a political issue. Let me know that. One of the reasons probably while this is um, even brought up somehow, we don't know if Jesus brought it, they might have brought it up, I don't know. But they want Jesus to make a political statement. Now, they would love nothing more than Jesus to oppose the Romans and come in and try to usurp the authority from the Romans because look what happened to the last group that did it. Okay? Now, how many know you begin to watch these current events? You see a situation like Las Vegas. And this is Jesus answering the questions that we're asking each other every day. Because the other event was equally traumatic. Well, only 18 people died. Well, that was a big deal for a small, much smaller town than uh, New York City or Las Vegas. 18 people died in a tower of Siloam. And so he's asking, they're asking him questions. He's responding. And this Tower of Siloam was the other story that he mentions here in chapter 13. He goes on and he says, Do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than the rest of the Galileans because they suffered this way? So he's saying, by Pilate killing them in such a tragic manner, were they worse sinners than everybody else? Jesus, this is a question that's being asked. So think about that. Then Jesus says, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now what in the world is he trying to say? And then he brings up another at this question. He says, or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others that were living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you, what, repent, you will also perish. So it brings up another really tragic event that everybody knew about. Eighteen people, uh, I don't know what happened to this tower, but they were in there, and it was almost like an accident. Maybe it wasn't built right, maybe it was a natural disaster, but eighteen people lost their lives, and it was very traumatic. Now, how many know uh, Las Vegas is traumatic? I mean, to see those people singing God Bless America one hour earlier and, and, and you know, just trying to enjoy themselves, probably we don't know what all kinds of groups were there, but we're put in a position where everybody is kind of like where Jesus was at. What is your judgment of the situation? What do you think about these people? What do you think about what happened here? And like I said, it's a very political question because you got to make a judgment about the Roman government. You know, you got to figure out why do good people suffer bad things? Why do calamity and sin happen? Did somebody do something wrong or this or that? And Jesus changes this whole question. And he says something really interesting here that you might miss. He says, unless 
you repent, you will perish like them. Now the interesting thing is he didn't say you will die like them. Because that would insinuate that a tower is going to fall on them or a pilot is going to murder them. All right? He said you will perish like they did. Now perish is a whole different word. Remember, what? for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. And what God is saying is, you don't know when your court date is. He's like, everybody wants to answer all the political questions. Did they do something wrong to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Now, what if, it, you know, I'm very fortunate or I'm different, I'm better because I wasn't at Las Vegas or I wasn't in one of these tragedies that has happened recently. We all say, wow, I wasn't there. There's something uh, better about me or maybe you want to go through all the issues of why it happened. And Jesus said, there's one thing you should be squarely focused on when you see people lose their lives like that. And the thing you should think about is nobody knows when their court date is. Nobody knows. You say, well, the end of time, I've got this all figured out. I'm ready for the end times, man. I'm going to go and I'm going to try to be ready for the rapture, but if I'm not, I've got this plan for the tribulation, it may not even come to the second coming of the Lord. He's, what he's saying is there is an urgency today to repent. Because your court date could come just like them at any moment. And he's saying the foundation of the way that you should live is repentance. You you need to have a foundation at all times of a heart that is repentant because you could perish eternally. Guess what the statistic is for death? One... Out of every one. We're all going to die. And we all do not have a guarantee that we will live the next moment. This could be the Tower of Siloam. You never know. Several years ago, people were sitting in a hotel called Drury Inn. Who would have ever thought an airplane would hit that hotel? How do you remember that? These are the events that Jesus is talking about. What is his reaction? If I were to come up and say, Jesus... What is your reaction with, with Las Vegas or the Drury Inn or this hurricane? Or what if you're sitting on the beach of Indonesia and a hundred foot wave comes at you? Let me remember the tsunami that hit Indonesia. And what Jesus would respond if I asked him today is the same thing he would respond here. You have a court date with God. And you need to have an attitude of repentance that is consistent throughout your life. And I started saying, well, man, God, I don't know. I want to preach a message about repentance. I mean, no, that's not a feel-good message. But how important is the message? How many preachers should be preaching that message? Let me take you through a few scriptures here. Really important scriptures. Matthew 3.1. Now why is this scripture important? It's important because G, uh, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one that began to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
That means the kingdom of heaven is happening right now. Like right now, God is preparing this judgment. Okay, right now the kingdom is opening. Uh, let me give you a good quote here. The gospel is the rule of God that has arrived in Jesus Christ to save sinners before he arrives at his second coming in judgment. Think about this. The gospel has arrived to preach good news through Jesus Christ because at the second coming, he will bring judgment with him. So right now we have a real opportunity to receive the good news, and the good news is the judgment doesn't have to apply to us. He's, he's trying to spare the impending judgment. He's trying to take you to a reward seat as opposed to a judgment seat. So this gospel is to be preached everywhere. So you would expect, if that's the truth, you would expect this message of repentance to be like a central message, wouldn't you? Let's look at Matthew 3.1. This is the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. And he's beginning to speak about the work of Christ. And what is the first thing that John says? The beginning of his ministry, the very first thing he says is, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, and he said, he was saying what? Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. So the very first thing, John begins to lay a foundation of repentance. So we really, this is starting to take a very serious note. You are the offender. You guys know that? The whole foundation of the gospel is, I'm an offender and you're an offender. We all have offended God. We all are worthy of His judgment. We all have an impending court date before God. But suddenly, this message comes along from the foundation of the earth that says you don't have to have judgment against you. You can have God's blessing, but until you understand that you are a sinner, this message will mean nothing to you. Until you realize that there is a real court date. How many see college basketball has the FBI checking them out now? Up until now, coaches could do just about anything. They were giving people money left and right. But now the FBI is involved. Three of those coaches got arrested and they're being warned that they may get 80 years in prison. Partly because they want them to sing like a canary. But they're threatening 80 years in prison from the FBI. Previous to that, your school could go on probation. That was about it. But the FBI, 80 years in prison. And when you begin to realize how serious the judgment of God is, it's not probation for your school that God is warning us about. He's warning us of an eternity away from God where there's gnashing of teeth. There's an eternal fire that is not quenched. How many churches are preaching this this morning? It doesn't feel good. Not a feel-good message. It's a message that I would have rather rolled over at 5 a.m. And, and forgot about at 6 a.m. But I couldn't. But there is an impending judgment that is against you. How does that feel? I'm guilty. The judgment is against me. 
I have a court date that is coming. He said, the kingdom of heaven is near. So unless I somehow receive the good news, I have no escape. I've got to face God with all, I'm sorry, sorry. I have to face God with all my sins. I didn't step on his foot hard. I just barely got his foot, didn't I? I didn't hurt you, did I? Good. Awesome. Um, but I can receive this gospel, and not only can I be relieved of all judgment, because of, not because of my good works, not because I'm good, but because my sins will no longer be held against me. And that's what this message they're preaching. Repent and be saved. Repent. Let's go on a little farther. Jesus starts his ministry. This is uh, just a chapter over, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus just started his ministry. What are the first things that come out of Jesus' mouth when he starts to preach his ministry? It says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. What was his message? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent again. This is the foundation of everything they preached. was repent. Now why are churches not preaching this? You say, well, that's only two. You're going to have to give me more information than that. Turn to Matthew 11.20. He's pleading with the Jews here. And it says, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of His miracles have been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you. Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have reported long ago, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than it is for you. He's preaching, woe means judgment, because you would not, what? Repent. I mean, this message is everything he says. Well, Jesus was a God of love. He was a God of love. 100% the most loving human being that ever lived. But he preached repentance. Because he loves. He pre- because he cares. If I'm a pastor that cares, repentance will come out of my mouth. Lovingly say, repent because your court date is coming. What kind of lawyer would I be? If I didn't coach my client on humility and, and asking for mercy, I'd be a terrible lawyer because he's got an impending court date. Let's go on a little further. He goes on Matthew 20. Just keep going. Same book. Jesus pleading again about repentance. This is the one where he says that uh, Nineveh will rise up in judgment against you I'm going to write my verse down. But he says, Nineveh one day will rise up in judgment against Israel because Nineveh, Jonah came and preached to them, and guess what they did? They repented. And he said, now there's somebody greater than him that is here, and you won't repent. And then he said that uh, the queen of Sheba... She came all the way from her uh, a nation that was far away 
and she will stand in judgment against you because she came to seek the wisdom of Solomon from a faraway place. And he said, a greater person than Solomon is in your midst and you won't listen to a word I say. But do you see the language? It's court language. They're actually going to rise up and be a witness against them because they repented and they wouldn't. That's something. <clears throat> Goes on. Look at Revelation 2.5. This is a message to the church. I could go a lot of other places here, but for the sake of time I won't. Revelation 2.5 says, remember this is a message to the church in the last days. That's us. It says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. Do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Goes on. Revelation 2.16. Next church, Smyrna. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 3.3, church of Sardis. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. Well, my version doesn't have repent. Does your version have repent there? Okay. And then go to verse 19 of chapter 3. It says, Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Do you see this message all the way through the, the New Testament? Goes on, uh, Paul. Oh, this is uh, Luke 24. This is what he expects the church to do. Luke 24, verse 45. Listen to this. This is what Jesus, before he was, uh, before he ascended, he said, Then he opened their minds. Luke 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be what? So what am I supposed to preach? Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached. Then what will happen? To all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have hold with power from on high. What's the power from on high for? To preach repentance and forgiveness. <clears throat> Goes on. Acts 2, here's the beginning of the church. Acts 2.38. I'm giving you a history here, but it's a very important foundation. Acts 2.38 says, This is the very beginning of the church, and this is the first sermon that was preached in church. Alright, the church is brand new, stands up to preach a message. Peter goes with a content of a message here, begins to preach as the first sermon. The Holy Spirit just fell upon him, and he summarizes his sermon at the very end. And the people said, when the people heard his sermon, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
First message. Second message. This is Peter's second message, Acts 3.19. He preaches his message. And then he says, Repent now and turn to God so your sins may be wiped out and a time of refreshing may come. What is the time of refreshing? The Holy Spirit being poured out on His church. So you say, well, what do we need for revival? What is consistent with every revival that's ever happened? And it is repentance. It is the people of God repenting and the refreshing and the fullness of the Holy Spirit to fall upon those people. You know, we've made it a whole lot of other things to work up the Holy Spirit. But the Bible's foundation is very clear. Let's look a little further. Paul's message. He gathers the elders together in Acts chapter 20. And as he gathers them together, he gives kind of an idea of what he expects them. This is Acts twenty twenty one, and he says, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly and from house to house. Now, what in the world did Paul preach? I've declared to the Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on. Acts 26, Paul summarizes his ministry. What, did, what would Paul summarize his ministry as? That he's a faith healer or that he, uh, you know... There's a lot of things Paul could have said that he did because Paul was a, you know, was commissioned to write a lot of the books of the Bible, but Paul summarizes his ministry like this in Acts 26, 19 to 21. He says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. What was Paul's vision from heaven? First to those in Damascus and those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preach that they should repent and turn to God. And not only that, but they should prove their repentance by their actions. Wow. How many would say that that's a good foundation of what we should be doing in the church? So what is this repentance? some good ideas first of all some of the what some of the best ways to find out what something is is to find out first what it is not i always believe that if you can contrast something you might have a better understanding of what it actually is so one thing that it is not all through the bible you can't define repentance necessarily by a definition you have to look at the bible and see everything that the bible says about that one thing repentance is not is outward Because this is what Jesus was specifically addressing. Because the Pharisees were outwardly wonderful. Repentance is something that is inward. In fact, the word repentance literally means a change of direction, a change of your mind, a change of your heart. So how do you know if somebody has repentance? It's not because on the outside they said that they're living for God, or whatever word they want to use or whatever phrase they want to use, there's a lot of them out there. It's not what you say. It's not the ritual that you went through. It's not the attendance that you do on Sunday morning. It's the fact that you change 
direction and now you're going in a whole different direction. It means that something on the inside is different. That something that was there before changed and it was a literal 180 and I'm going in a different direction now. And you say, well, I did that one time. I'm glad you did it one time, but God wants you to have a heart that lives in repentance. It's the foundation of everything we preach, everything we say, everything we do is the fact that I'm not going my own way. I was going my direction, my direction, my, 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 my opinion, my desire, my everything was that direction. And God said, turn around and go my direction. It says, in one place it says, we preached repentance toward God. That means I was walking one way and the Bible says a way that seems right to a man in his own heart leads to destruction. It says a man's heart is deceitful beyond anything. And so there came a day when I had to recognize I am a sinner. I do not know the right way. I don't know how to act. I am not good enough. The Pharisees could never come to that point because they were good enough. They were good enough to get to heaven, they felt like. And he was telling them, no, you got to go a different direction toward God. It's not outward, it's inward. Something inside has to dramatically change. Uh, one of the things that Paul gave a picture of us, he warned the vipers. He said, you vipers, who has warned you to flee God's wrath? And some commentators, I found this really interesting. Some commentators said that he was actually referring, first of all, how upsetting would it be to be a religious person called a snake? You're a viper. Preachers back then had a little more backbone. All right? He just called them vipers. But they say that the example he was using here was like, how many have ever seen like a, uh, how many have ever had like a pile of debris you wanted to burn? And all up inside that debris are snakes and animals that burrow up there after a while. It's perfect for animal shelter. And what he was saying was, You guys are like snakes that are all holed up in there. The fire of judgment comes and you guys flee the wrath. But you're still a snake. Your nature never changed. As soon as the fire went out, guess what you did? Went back to being a snake. And what God is trying to say is, our nature is going to change. You're going to go from... Death to life. You're going to go from death to life because you've truly had a change of heart. You're going to go from being the Lord to having a Lord. You're going to go from being in control to giving Him control. You're not going to be the same nature. And see, a lot of people, when they repent, they're fleeing the fire. They're fleeing the wrath. They want to be on good terms with the judge, so they'll put on anything they have to put on. And as soon as the judge says, I'm going to show him mercy, guess what they do? Go back to being a snake. And what God is saying is, true repentance doesn't do that. You'll somebody truly repented, not by what they say, but not by what they look, but how their nature has changed. My nature is now 
trying to be just like God in everything I do. And you fail. We fail, right? But my nature, I'm trying to be like God. He's my Lord. He's the Lord of my life. I'm not the Lord of my life anymore. Second thing, false repentance. False repentance holds on to the goodness of man. Think about this. The Pharisees could not shed the fact that they were good. Can I tell you that good is an illusion? The Bible says there is none good, maybe a few. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say maybe if you, well, so-and-so was good, he was really good. I mean, if anybody could have been good enough to go to heaven, he was good. He was so far from going to heaven, you would not even believe it. You wouldn't believe how far we are from making it to heaven. In fact, he uses an analogy on repentance at the end of chapter 12. And he says, I'm not going to read it, but you can go back and read it. In Luke chapter 12, before he talks about this, the context is, he says, suppose a man, suppose a man has a loan with somebody. All right? And it's a Jewish man he has a loan with. And he says, let's suppose that, and and, and most of the study I've done on it says that maybe the guy owed the other guy interest on the loan. Well, in Jewish custom, he could have actually been freed from that loan after seven years, right? He had an easy route with the original loan. But it says that he refused to pay the man the loan, so now rather than have an easy arrangement with the man... Now he's on his way to go see a magistrate, and the magistrate will hand him over to the judge, and the judge will hand him over to the officer, and he'll be put in prison. But he had an easy way to do it, and in there, tucked in the end of chapter 12, it says, it would be better for you on the way to the courtroom to try to reconcile with the man instead of going to the court. Now what do you think Jesus is trying to say? What he's trying to say is, I've offered you a way to take care of your debt. I've offered you repentance. I've offered you forgiveness. Wouldn't it be better to reconcile with me before you go to the judgment seat? I mean, Jesus is laying this thing out so clear. He wants us to reconcile and walk in repentance and forgiveness. How many walk with a spirit of repentance? People I know how much of a sinner I am. You don't have to tell me that I'm not a good person because I know it, and that's what makes His grace so amazing. That's what makes me want to get up every day and be more like Him. That's what makes me want to be just like Him, even in the midst of failure. Because I know what I am. I know what the way God sees my sins. I know my nature. And I've received His nature. I've received His forgiveness. I've received His mercy. And judgment is not being held over me anymore. Praise the Lord. That's what's so exciting about the good news. He made an easy way. Why go to the magistrate? Why go to the judge? Why go through all of that when all you have to do is reconcile with your God now? False repentance. 
Genesis 6, 5. Very beginning, he said, God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Some of you listen to that and you say, that's not me. Be careful. Be careful because everything I have is because that was me. Everything I have is because it came from him. It's not me because my heart is evil continually without God. I may know that to be true, but God has put good in me. I'm not good. He's good. Genesis 8.21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. How many think this is a lie that I'm preaching? How many recognize that in your life, that evil, even from your youth, you would think of things and you'd say, where did that come from? It's that sinful nature. And, and, and the Pharisees lied to themselves. They built the illusion that they didn't have that. And they didn't need a Savior. They didn't need Jesus. They were good. Psalm 14.2, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if any of them, see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's where Romans quotes that. He's trying to make us understand that without a Savior... We have a debt that we cannot pay. A debt that we cannot pay. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was bought, brought forth in iniquity and sin, um, and in sin when my mother conceived me. Isaiah 64, For all have become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like filthy garments for the Lord. Wow. So false repentance won't recognize that. They'll look at... Human beings are good people, basically good. We're all basically good, right? We just need to turn over a new leaf. I need to be a little more disciplined. That's false repentance. True repentance says, God needs to transform my nature. And I'm going to fail, but God has given me a plan that will transform my nature. I am a sinner saved by grace. And God is changing me from day to day and transforming me. He sees me now as perfect, and He's transforming me from day to day to be perfect. False repentance will be judged by God. Isn't it kind of a fearful thing when the words that He uses are wrath, an axe, and a fire? (laughs) Think about it. I can't take those parts of the Bible out. When he says, if they don't bear fruit, the axe is laid to the tree. When he says, if they're thrown into the fire, I can't remove those things. Those are things that God put in there, and I've got to preach them. But he says that the axe is laid to the tree, the fire, the wrath of God. It's a fearful thing, the Bible says, to fall in the hands of an angry God. Now, why would I preach a message like this? I feel terrible. Why would I preach a message like this? Because I love you. And if we, if we don't hear this, if all we hear is feel-good message, that's all we hear, how can we be ready? How can we be prepared? How can a tragedy come? You know, you know if I don't preach this message, tragedies can come in this life and not even affect 
your relationship with God. You can be arguing liberal, Democrat, uh, Republican, gun laws. You could be arguing all that, but thank God we don't do that, right? Amen. I didn't get one amen. We don't do that. Because all we think about is, man, am I right with God? Are the people around me right with God? Because I have a court date. And that just emphasizes to me the fact that my heart has to be right with God because at any moment, I could be in the presence of God. Praise the Lord. I hope you guys like my sarcasm. I get a big kick out of it. I'm sorry. True repentance. (laughs) True repentance. I read a story about a um, a funeral. Um, you know, the paper they hand out at a funeral that uh, has a scripture on it. And the pastor said that it actually said, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes on Him should have eternal life." So, what's wrong with that? They took out, should not perish. How many that the world we live in does that a lot? It's like there's only all good. There's no bad here. Yeah, don't put that should not perish. You know, let's let's take that out of that verse, but I can't take that out. So true repentance, what does the, the first thing you need with true repentance is you have to acknowledge the fact that your heart is sinful and ask God for a new heart. Listen to this. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. True repentance recognizes the sinfulness of the human heart and asks God daily to give me a new heart. Every day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't realize that I'm a sinful human being. Now, does it break me? Does it make me feel like I'm a such an awful person that God can't have me? No, it makes me recognize that Jesus died for a reason that Jesus died for a purpose, that He died for a plan, and I'm right in the middle of His plan. And so what my part of the plan is, receive His forgiveness, receive His mercy, never forget who I was, but also never forget who I'm becoming. Praise the Lord. So the first part of repentance is recognition. Second thing, did you notice He tells a parable here about a plan? Right after he talks about repentance, he says that there was a plant in a vineyard, and for three years, that plant, he took care of it. He cultivated it, he fertilized it, he pruned it, and just really took good care of this plant in Luke chapter 13. And the owner of the vineyard came up and said, this plant is not bearing any fruit at all. And he he begged him. He interceded. This is a picture of intercession that we see all through the Bible. And the man said, please give me one more year and I'll make this thing bear fruit. And if he doesn't bear fruit after one more year, then cut it down. It's just taking up space. 
And it's an example that out of repentance, out of repentance comes fruit. You say, well, is this saying that somehow what I do is earning my salvation? No, what it means is it's like the alabaster box. When you crush that alabaster box, you couldn't help but have perfume flow from it. When you crushed an olive oil in a press, a grinding press, you couldn't help but have oil flow from it. When you squeeze the grape, you can't help but have the juice flow from it. And what God's saying is when there is true repentance, something begins to flow out of that vessel. Something will begin to flow out of you. And guess what it is? It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You begin to love people more than you've ever loved people. You begin to have more joy. Now Christians, we got to figure out the difference between fun and joy. Because everybody wants to have fun. But joy. Man, there's no judgment day that worries me because I'm full of the joy of the Lord. There's nothing in this world that's going to get me down no matter what it is because I'm full of the joy of the Lord. Peace. God wants to give you peace through every valley, every storm. And the Bible says when there's true repentance, that that just oozes from you and begins to grow and begins to grow and begins to grow. And so true repentance is a crush that releases fruit. It's like a vine that's just releasing fruit because of that crushing of repentance. With no repentance, there is no crushing. So if you try to give your heart to the Lord without true repentance, then there's no crushing. Repentance is not penance. I mean, know that. Some people want to do penance. Penance is not a crushing. It's paying God back. It's saying, God, here, I'm going to give you all of this if you give me repentance. How many know that God won't receive your gift? God won't. Re- it's a free gift from Him to you. Penance is not repentance. You'll see other countries, you'll see people crawling through the rocks on their knees because they bleed. It doesn't matter how far they crawl, God won't receive it. That's not repentance. How many know repentance is not remorse? So, oh man, I feel really bad for what I did. Do you know that Judas, his remorse caused him to commit suicide? You know that? He felt so bad for selling his Savior that he threw the money in the temple because they wouldn't accept his money back and he went and hung himself. How many know remorse will only drag you down? What God wants to do is true godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. And true godly sorrow is, I understand there's a place at the cross for me, the sinner. And when you find that forgiveness, there is joy, not sorrow. When you find that there is forgiveness for that nature that we have that's gross, there's joy, not sadness. So remorse is not the same as repentance. Third, repentance not condemnation. I mean, no, it's not condemnation. You, some of you get beat up so bad, and you think that's repentance. That's not repentance. How many know that? 
Self-condemnation is not repentance because repentance understands that God paid the price. Self-condemnation has no realization of that. They think that, oh man, I've done bad and I'm an awful person. That's not repentance either. So what are the three elements of repentance? And I'm going to close with these three. First of all, conviction. How many know that there's not repentance unless there's first conviction? Conviction is a scary word in modern churches. Because you know what conviction is? Somebody's uncomfortable. (laughs) We don't want people uncomfortable in our churches. Right? Let's make them comfortable. Let's make them as comfortable as we can get them. All right? Let's make them really, really comfortable. If something is just too uncomfortable, let's change the way we're doing it. And But see, repentance requires conviction. Because what conviction does is tell you you're going the wrong way. So it's like, I'm going my way, my way, my way, my way. Well, Twin Bridges, I don't want to go my way. I want to go the way I'm supposed to go. And conviction is like a street sign. It says, warning, that way leads to judgment. That way is the wrong way. That way will not lead to joy and peace and love and happiness. That, joy, that will not go that way, and conviction stops you in your tracks. So the Bible says the work of the Holy Spirit is to constantly convict. How many know there are two voices that are speaking to you? One is conviction, one is condemnation. Condemnation says, go away from God. That's not the Holy Spirit. But the other voice is conviction, and it says, go to God. So when Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, there was a voice that was saying, hide. Who do you think that was? It wasn't God. It wasn't telling them to hide from Him. You know, they were running from God, running from God, running from God. Conviction says, go to God. Though your sins are like scarlet, though your sins are really bad, God says in Isaiah, let us talk it over because I will make them white as snow. So conviction is drawing, condemnation is pushing you away. Second thing in repentance is contrition. You know, you've got to have a understanding that my sin is damaging to me. My sins are damaging to the world around me. You know, there are some uh, sins that they say are victimless sins. How many know that? We'll say the P word here. Don't get too out of whack here. Pornography. The victimless sin. But do you realize that pornography is full of women in the sex trade business that have been abducted and all kinds of really bad things, drug addiction? But it's the victimless sin. Do you know that that is connected with every filthy Sexual, immoral sin in the world today is connected to that sin. So you have now connected yourself with that sin. And what God wants you to understand is my sin, that pornography is destroying you. And He wants you to know that. He wants you to be a, have a serious contrition about that sin to where you know it's number one, it's destroying me. Number two, whatever my sin is, it's destroying everybody around me. 
Whether I can see it or not, it's the culture is being destroyed by me. And then the most important person is it has to be contrition toward God. The number one thing is I've sinned against you and you only, God. And because I've sinned against God, I want God to change me. Because He died for me and I love Him. And so you have to have that. You have to have conviction. You have to have contrition. And the third thing, you have to have a desire to change. Repentance in its truest form, the definition of the word is, I'm going a different direction and now I'm following God with all my heart.